If you spent any time in Cincinnati, you probably know the hulking white building with a tower on top that rises just west of I-75. In a city of architectural gems, the fortress-like Crosley building in Cincinnati's Camp Washington neighborhood stands out for its size and its neglect. What might not be apparent gazing at the building is how much history making took place there. This podcast is the story of how a now empty building helped change the world and how the fate of the neighborhood around it is tied up in its construction, its boom years, its decline, and efforts to resurrect it. This is Crosley at the Crossroads, how a Cincinnati landmark mirrors the fortunes of the city. I'm Nick Swartzell. Crosley's popularity carried the company through the Great Depression. Meanwhile, war was brewing, and the Crosleys were situated to play a key role. On a blustery day in October, a car pulled up to the facility on Arlington Street in Camp Washington. Military officials got out and went straight to Powell Crosley's office. They had a top-secret contract to discuss with him. Rusty McClure tells us more. Hey, Rusty, I'm here uh, in the Crosley building with you. Uh, we have been talking about the history of the Crosley brothers, the Crosley Corporation, Louis Crosley, your grandfather, and uh, uh, pulling some stuff from your book about the Crosley family. Today, we're going to talk about what happened here during World War II um, and, and the pivotal role that this building and the Crosley Corporation played in uh, defense efforts during the 1940s. So I want to I pull something that I, I got from your book. On a day that's probably a lot like this in October, 1941, uh, atomic scientist Dr. Uh, Lawrence Hofstad and U.S. Naval Reserve Lieutenant Victor Hicks came here and met with uh, Crosley Research and Development Vice President Louis Clement. Uh, it was under the highest secrecy. They shut the blinds, didn't let anybody else in. What were they discussing, and how did that impact uh, American war efforts in World War II? Picture a radio sits in the corner. It's almost a piece of furniture back then. He has a power pack. Picture a radio station. Big tall tower. A guy by the name of Tuve, a scientist, a Einstein Manhattan Project grade scientist, knows that 19th century, the 1800, 1700 cannon are being aimed in the air to take out the Luftwaffe that is bombing London with almost a 100% failure rate. 10,000 rounds of cannon fire are fired nights in London, not bringing down one airplane. And the free world is at risk. Tuve has figured out that you could take that big radio and miniaturize it, and you could take the radio broadcasting system, sure. power pack, and miniaturize it. This is 1940s, early 1940s. The idea of miniaturizing anything is going to be born in the 1960s as a result of the space race. Tuve is so far ahead of his time, he thinks that he can use a radio wave to take a smart bomb against the German Air Force. He has no idea how he can get that done. He comes to Cincinnati, like you just said, with the idea that they can pack 
into a 35 millimeter cannon shell, two and a half, maybe three inches, a power pack that will drive a radio broadcast system that will launch after being fired from a cannon at an airplane, and it will then start broadcasting a radio wave. That radio wave, as it gets closer to the proximity of the airplane, will then bounce off the airplane, and the radio receiver will then calibrate the distance being shortened all in a matter of seconds, and it will detonate that shell in the proximity of the airplane and blow it up. Now, they want to do this as a science experiment, but it needs to be done in the next year. The Crosley technology right here in this building gets applied to that smart bomb. Decades before anybody could even imagine there was a smart bomb, 6,000 proximity fuses are built in buildings around this building, assembled by mostly women, mostly German descent women, under the cloak of machine gun or armed, at least, military personnel. They do not know what they're building. 6,000 of these are built a day. They are packed in milk cartons, milk crates, put on milk wagons, taken to Lunkin Field, and flown out to areas of the Allied front so that they can be placed on naval warships. Why naval warships only? So that if a dud ever lands, it will land on the water. Right. And the enemy, A, won't know what it's up against, and B, can't get one and replicate it. Consider the number two top secret weapon in all of World War II because the atomic bomb was the number one top secret weapon of World War II. No one knew about it. No one knew after the war because it remained top secret. And most of the Cincinnatians who built Joe's proximity fuses in the Crosley Corporation went undetected, unnoticed, and unrewarded in history until it was released decades later what they had done. Incredible. And that all happened here in this, in this building all, and the buildings around it. In, um, in, yes, in this neighborhood, people had to have identification papers to come to work. They had to present those, and they were armed army personnel with loaded weapons allowing them to come into the plant to build a weapon that they didn't even know they were building. And there were other uh, defense contracts that this, this building and, and uh, Crosley Company had. Is that correct? There were. Let's talk about two or three of them. Okay. One of them was the Norton Gun Site. If you ever saw Unbroken, the movie Unbroken or read the book Unbroken, the guy is captured, tortured. He is on a training mission. The, guns, the Norton Gun Site is a top secret product that allows you to look down and calibrate the target for a aerial bombing in a way that had never been done before. 
They were built right here in this neighborhood, right here in this building, some of them perhaps. They were all top secret, nobody knew about it. My great uncle, as we have spoken before, had a lifelong dream of building a car. He launches a car in 1939 at the World's Fair in New York and it gets immediately shut down because of the war effort. So the grasshopper adaptable mind of Pal Crosley wants the Crosley car to be a Jeep. So he applies several times, they do modifications. It's just not big enough. Picture a golf cart. It's a very small car. It doesn't have the horsepower. It doesn't have the back seat capability. Can't get through the mud. And so they give it to Willys. But the Japanese take over three or four of the Aleutian Islands. And it is anticipated that the United States will have to fight the Japanese in Alaska. So a top secret conversion of the Crosley car into the world's first snowmobile, the Jeep that will go on the snow, takes place right in this neighborhood. And the Japanese never get that far. They get beat back. So there is never that fight going on, going to happen. And so the prototype Crosley car conversion doesn't ever happen. Wow. All of this in this neighborhood, in this building, like historic war effort kind of things. I want to ask another question about things that were happening in the 1940s and uh, is about employment and about labor a little bit, uh, if, you're, if you want to go sure. there. Uh, so as I was reading in your book, there were thousands of people employed here uh, and around here in the, in the 1940s uh, by the Crosley Company. Um, at, at some point, all but about seven, a handful, let's say, of them were, were white people, right? So uh, talk a bit about, and I, I read about this in your book, talk a bit about this sort of like racial and labor politics at the company and in this building at the time. Like you you kind of go into a little bit of the unionizing, a little bit of sort of like, um, and this was happening in other companies all across the country. Talk, talk about that if you can. Yes. Um, it's an unfortunate story, but it's the truth. And so we, we carry it as far as we can in a book that's so full of so many facts, but we did not want to skip over the fact that we are on the edge of the North and the South. Ohio is a union state. Kentucky is not. A lot of the people, the rural people came to cities like they have done for several generations to get to the cities so they could have different kinds of jobs than hoeing beans and same thing my great-grandfather did when he left uh, the rural environment. And you have racial tension. The Crosleys tried to hire black people, and they wouldn't allow, the, it, it's, it's the workforce. It's not the management that keeps the black people from being allowed to be here. You have the same problem, the, the Reds. The Cincinnati Reds are owned by uh, the Crosleys. They take it over during... Uh, take the ball club over uh, Powell initially, of course, and he takes it over, and it's not an integrated situation. Cincinnati, we have to face, is not the place to bring Jackie Robinson as the player. As the, the first place to put Jackie Robinson would not be Cincinnati, Ohio, because of the racial problems. So you have a very difficult workforce introduction to black people and 
you could say easily that the Crosley should have done a better job. That um, you also have a very difficult uh, post-depression um, communist influence across the world, communist uprising to the workers against the the employees, and you have these wonder products that allow many many places are have great unemployment. Here you have a mecca of people wanting to come to work because they're building these refrigerators that are necessary. So food won't rot, uh, communication system, radio, we've talked about that. And so people are coming here, and, and, and the white people don't want the black people to work here. That, that's what we say in the book. You have and, the union problems, and the, the decision was not to fight that fight. Mm. They didn't yeah. fight the fight. Yeah. They, you know, they didn't pick it up and say, we're going to integrate our factories. Um, they didn't integrate their baseball field. Yeah. Uh, I, I read it in the book, and I thought it was important to, to kind of talk about a little bit. I think it is. Yeah. As the Crosleys worked on secret defense contracts, did a booming business in radios and refrigerators, and tinkered with selling cars, the rest of Cincinnati was totally caught up in the war effort. And there was another big change going on, a massive migration of people from Appalachia in the south. That migration had a direct impact on Camp Washington as people moved to work for industries like the Crosley Company. University of Cincinnati Zane Miller Chair of Urban History Dr. David Stradling and UC Center for the City Director Dr. Ann Delano Steiner tell us more. You touched on uh, radios reaching to rural areas and to Appalachia specifically, and a lot of folks were coming from those areas into places like Camp Washington to work. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of like migration that is happening mm -hmm. at this time? Yeah, I think the migration um, picks up particularly around World War II and um, and into the 1950s. Is that okay if I talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are two, there's a there are pushes out of Appalachia, particularly the collapse of coal mining jobs uh, as, you know, they continue to mine coal in Appalachia, but they're doing it more and more uh, with surf surface mining instead of deep, deep mining, uh, which means they need far fewer workers. And a, lo and a lot of these folks know that the, that's those jobs are not coming back. So they make their way into cities in the Midwest and Cincinnati in particular. So uh, lots of folks wind up in neighborhoods that are affordable. Camp Washington is one of them over the Rhine is another uh, lower price hill is another um, so the east end the, the east end lo lots of neighborhoods that uh, you know kind of entry points for migrants into the city and had traditionally been such in Camp Washington that gives them good access to uh, factory jobs particularly in the 40s and 50s um, but uh, not necessarily in the 1930s sure yeah, and I should I would add that when we were doing when I was doing some research in Over the Rhine about a particular building in Over the Rhine, we actually found that there were beginnings of Appalachian migration even as early as World War One when there were men had gone off to fight and the, people needed to fill factory jobs that um, industry would actually send recruiters into Appalachia. To, it wasn't um, there wasn't a path you know, set up yet, but that recruiters would go into Appalachia to try to recruit folks to come up to the city, even just if temporarily, to fill those missing industrial jobs. Um, and then, of course, that set up this sort of chain of migration where people had family in Appalachia and in Over the Rhine that they could sort of have a kind of a fluid flow. As the war came to an end, the Crosleys were riding high. 
but the company's days were numbered. In the following episodes, we'll talk about the sudden end of Crosley, at least at the Arlington Street facility, and its aftermath. This podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nick Swartzell. Editor, recording engineer, and assistant producer is Josh Elstro. Original music is by Josh Elstro and Leo Mercia. This is a project created by Action Tank USA, a nonprofit partnering with artists to research and promote public policy solutions at the local government level. Action Tank proudly presents this project in partnership with our marketing partner, WVXU, Cincinnati's local NPR affiliate. This project was made possible with the generous support of the Greater Cincinnati Foundation and the W.E. Smith Foundation.